welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobach. And this week, we are back with our dear friends, Tommy and Tuppence Beresford. Yay! That didn't sound like a very convincing yay, Catherine. You know, much like Tommy and Tuppence and their sort of ill-fated goings-on with their detective agency, there's a little uh, weariness with their adventures, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, these adventures in the Partners in Crime collection are slight, I think they're and they're, they're meant they're meant to be slight. Christine and, knew what she was doing. Some of the Poirots were slight as well, well. And also, you know what? They're perfectly enjoyable to read. Absolutely. So I do not mean to disparage them. I just don't necessarily think particularly highly of the lovely Beresford's crime solving skills. Shall we say? Sure. It makes our puzzling a little less intriguing. Agreed. And we were we were actually just speaking about this. For that reason, we're not slavishly going to go through every single Tommy and Tuppence in the Partners in Crime collection all in a row. I think we're going to mix it up a little bit soon with, with some other mm, with some other characters. So stay tuned for that. We haven't even given a title for, for which Tommy and Tuppence story we are dealing with. That title is... The Man in the Mist. <laughs> the Man in the Mist. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us when and where The Man in the Mist was published? I mean, I think that we can all guess where <laughs> The Man in the Mist was published. <laughs> the Man in the Mist was published in the sketch on December 3rd, 1920. 24. So we might as well address our victim. She's quite a victim, actually. This she they're, they're, She's quite a personage. This would be Gilda Glenn. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with the perhaps slightly more famous Gilda, as portrayed by Rita Hayworth. Gilda, are you decent? Me? Or Gilda Radner. Two fantastic Gildas right there. But the Rita Hayworth Gilda seems a little bit more like this Gilda. I also can never think of the Rita Hayworth Gilda without thinking of the line in Notting Hill where Julia Roberts quotes Rita Hayworth when she sleeps with Hugh Grant. And she says, Rita Hayworth used to say, men went to bed with a dream and they didn't like it when they woke up with reality. Oh boy. <laughs> Boo hoo hoo, Julia Roberts. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. That whole movie is actually intolerable to rewatch because oh, the whole time you're back. just thinking, Julia Roberts. <laughs> oh, Julia no. Roberts is the worst, but Hugh Grant, he owns a travel bookshop. No, he's a fantasy, of course, but <laughs> we're supposed to identify with Julia Roberts. The fame thing isn't really real, you know. Let's get back to our dear Gilda, Gilda Glenn, in mm-hmm. this case. She's the most beautiful woman in England, star of the stage. So she is an actress, <coughs> but she is also a giant dummy. <laughs> yeah. And she's not our murderer because she is, in fact, murdered by a blow to the head. Right. So we have a few suspects. The first is one Mervyn Bulger, as the court. He's a friend of Tommy's from way back when. And he's now, I guess, in a, like a casual acquaintance of Ms. Glenn. Yeah, he's just sort of chilling with her in mm-hmm. a hotel lobby. It's interesting. Indeed. Then we have Lord mm-hmm. Leckenbury, and he is an older man, a lord, hence the, the lord title. <laughs> <laughs> and he seems to be engaged to Ms. Gilda Glenn. Then we have James Riley, who is a poet, a pacifist poet, no less. 
Mm. And also a surly, redheaded, potential former love interest of Gilda. I feel like at this point, we can identify another character type who appears in so many Christie's, which is the left-leaning, angry young man who almost always ends up being politically neutered, if you will, Mm -hmm. and finishing the story as a romantic partner of some woman who has been the focus of attention or leading the action in some way. Like, we've seen this. Obviously, we just did three-act tragedy, and this is so Oliver Manders- all over again. Right, exactly. But there have been others, too, in other Christie's, like in in a couple of short stories. And I think it's a little bit her distaste for liberal politics, perhaps. Although, you know, yes, but also they're not the murderers. No, they're not. And they're actually... Spoiler alert, everybody. No, and they're actually, no. And they're they're actually always well-meaning and good people at heart. So it is more complicated than that. You're right. I'm, I'm glad you pushed back on that. It, it is more complicated than that. She's not saying that they're bad people, but it's a little paternalistic or maternalistic, I guess I should say. Like, they don't really know what they're talking about, but at heart, they're good people. They're just a little confused. Although I have some additional thoughts about this that we can get to momentarily, but let us okay. continue down the suspect sure. list to Mrs. Honeycott, who... Yes. Uh, which sounds like a made-up name if ever I've heard one. <laughs> For sure it does. <laughs> totally, totally made up. And she's like a frumpy, middle-aged, sanctimonious, judgy, mean lady. <laughs> We're just spoiling all over the place here, so let's let's continue. I was convinced, because Gilda Glenn is an actor, <coughs> that she was Mrs. Honeycott, that she was dressing up as her sister. Oh. And that somehow her sister was the one who was murdered, and we'd find out that there was a switch that oh, was done. you gave the story a lot so, more credit than I did. <laughs> right? I, well, I know. And she seemed so, there was something so theatrical and fake about Indeed. Mrs. Honeycott, right down to her name, but her appearance, too. It was bizarre. Yes, but she's also Gilda's sister, which I think I just failed to mention. Then we have Ellen the maid, so that is Mrs. Honeycott's maid. She seems to have as bad of an attitude as her employer. <laughs> I guess it's it's in the atmosphere at the Honeycott house. Maybe I'm thinking of Honeypot. Well, no, I think that is what you're thinking of. But also, like, there is a real sense of, like, it being a fake name. What is Tobias Funge's fake Mrs. Doubtfire in Arrested Development? Mrs. Mrs. Featherbottom. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Felidia Featherbottom, and I can cook, and I can clean, and I can take care of the little ones. I can also uh, sing a song or two, (laughs) if it comes in handy. When you put a squirt of frosting down your throat before we take a medication. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a distinct Mrs. Featherbottom quality to Mrs. Honeycott. And then last but certainly not least, we have... Last um, but actually absolutely least. <laughs> we have the policeman ghost. You heard that, right? <laughs> I said that. He's the titular man in the mist. And or potentially a vengeful local ghost. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be 
as per usual, we've started a couple of these Tommy and Tuppence short stories this way at this point. They're not very good at being detectives. The, the blunt international detective agency is, is not doing well. And in fact, they've really fallen on their faces at the beginning of this story because they tried to solve this case that required Tommy to dress up like a priest. And the case was solved right under their noses. It was a second footman. No one seemed to be all that surprised about it. And Except Tommy and Tuppence, apparently. Except Tommy and Tuppence. They just didn't know what they were doing. But what this does allow Christy to do in her very slight send-up-y kind of a way is to send up yet another detective series that was popular around the time that she was writing. And this is perhaps the only other one except for her own creation of Poirot and Sherlock Holmes that people today will know. So that's exciting. Let's take a moment to explore this. Father Brown. Right, of course. So they mentioned Father Brown, and then there's a a little bit of lip service done to the idea of sending up Father Brown throughout the story. It's actually more effective in the adaptation because you are reminded that he is dressed up as a priest since you see him dressed up as a priest throughout half the episode, whereas you kind of forget about it in, in the story. But I was vaguely aware of the Father Brown stories as short stories, just as a Golden Age detective fiction fan. I've read a couple of them. I was they, I never went wild for them, but they were a series of stories that were written from 1910 to 1936, which might actually surprise some people that it was that early, because I think a lot of people will be familiar with Father Brown through the new BBC adaptation starring Mark Arthur Weasley Williams as the titular Father Brown, um, because that one is set in the 50s in the Cotswolds. And I've watched a couple of those episodes as well. They're delightful. So, yay, Father Brown. He's a priest. He tends to interestingly solve mysteries through intuition. He has a more of a fuzzy, emotional approach to solving crime than certainly Sherlock Holmes and even our own Monsieur Poirot. Perhaps he's a little bit more like Miss Marple. I mean, Miss Marple is certainly using her intuition and her knowledge of human psychology, but not in a clinical manner. In any case, I've already said a lot more about Father Brown than is certainly said in this story, but the fun of these partners in crime stories are these very slight glances of spoofs that we get here and there, and I I like the fact that people might actually have an opinion of Father Brown, or at least recognize him, and not be like, huh? Who's that? Who is she talking about? Which is kind of, other than Holmes and Watson, usually my reaction. By the way, speaking of priests as detectives, which is a little subgenre of its own, I was kind of thinking about this. Did you ever watch the Brother Cat File? Mysteries starring no. one Derek Jacobi. You didn't? They were delightful too. And no. those are based on a series of novels. They like proceed chronologically and they're set very specifically in like the middle 1100s. And he's got knowledge of herbs and he became a priest late in life. So he's totally had love affairs and he knows all this stuff. And they're really fun. But the other priest as detective show that I really appreciated growing up was Father Dowling. Did you ever watch that? No, but I do know what you're talking about there. I actually assumed that you probably wouldn't have watched it because it was on pretty early. Catherine is more than a few years younger than me. Not an insane amount of years younger than me, but a bit. She's a bit younger than me. And the Father Dowling series was on around 1990. I think it was like 89 to 92, something like that. So for me, that was perfect. I was around 10, 11, 12, 13. But you, I doubt you were appreciating that when you were... 
five. <laughs> no, not so much. Not not. He had so a much. nun sidekick, Sister Steve. She grew up in the hood, so she knew what was what, and she could talk to people. And it was actually, I mean, it was it was a very cheesy USA show, but it was fun. So anyway, so where so were Tommy we is dressed up as a priest from this failed case. He and Tuppence are commiserating at the Grand Adlington Hotel. They decide to get some drinks before they hop on a train back to London. And lo and behold, Tommy's old buddy Bolger sees him and then comes up to them and then introduces the beautiful, the famous Gilda Glenn, who joins the conversation, but not really because she's so stupid that she almost can't speak. That's how dumb she I is. I mean, she's pretty bad off. Yeah, yeah. But, but Tommy and Tuppence so, love but, but her. Tommy they've watched her on the stage. Yeah, they do. They're starstruck. They're totally starstruck. And interestingly, this was not the case in the adaptation, but in the story, she just completely ignores Tuppence. She, does she doesn't look at her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even talk to her. She has no use for her. She kind of latches on to Tommy. She sees a priest. She thinks he's a priest because she sees the priest's clothes. And then they make a joke about how he's not really a priest, but because they didn't literally say, no, 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 he's not a priest, she doesn't get it. In fact, this is Tommy's private thought. I wonder if she'll ever get it. Dot, dot, dot. Not unless I put it in words of one syllable for her, I should say. (laughs) Yeah. So she's very stupid. So, Tommy and Tuppence need to get the train back to London. So, Bulger gives them directions to the train station, and he recommends that the quickest route is down Morgan's Avenue, but also notes, ha-ha, it's haunted because there's a cemetery and a ghost police officer. So Isn't great. Gilda, Gilda's um, like, oh, Morgan Avenue, oh, no, there's a ghost. I know. And then she's like, there's not really ghosts, are there? <laughs> but she leaves because Lord Leakenberry shows up. And then Bulger mm-hmm. leaves, and then Tommy and Tuppence somehow get a note from Gilda Glenn, who apparently can write, I, which is surprising. It's so, she's, she's written as so stupid that I had the exact same thought. I was like, I don't believe that that woman could actually write a note. That's exactly yeah, what I too. thought. That's um, funny. And so she asked that they meet her, or at least Tommy meet her at the quote-unquote the White House on uh, Morgan's Avenue, the haunted Not the one on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Indeed. And so they're already headed that way, and she senses they might be able to help her, presumably because she has ESPN (laughs) or something. You're not stupid, Karen. No, I am actually. I'm failing almost everything. Well, there must be something you're good at. I can put my whole fist in my mouth. Want to see? No. That's okay. Anything else? I'm kind of psychic. I have a bit sense. What do you mean? It's like I have ESPN or something. My breasts can always tell when it's gonna rain. Really? That's amazing. Well, they can tell when it's raining. There's a 30% chance it's (laughs) raining on Morgan's Avenue. (laughs) So anyway... At this point, a bedraggled redhead throws himself down, talking to himself, cursing women, and then suggesting that he's going to start choking people to death. And then he (laughs) just introduces himself to Tommy and Tuppence, because, of course, why not? And this is our pacifist poet. And Catherine thinks that he has a Reddit I, account if he if he were living in, in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I assume that he was somehow involved in Gamergate. <laughs> My theory about him is that he's exactly the person who 
can't get a date, and then he says it's because women don't go for the nice guys. Meanwhile, he's like throwing down with Tommy and Tuppence and talking about all the people he wants to choke out. <laughs> yeah, and because by the way, I said that Christy has a character type, but this is not one who ends up in any way being confirmed as a nice guy or a good guy toward the end. So he really could be just quite awful. We we don't really know. He- we we don't know that. That's true. But it could just be all talk. All talk, yes. He is, he is a bit set up as, as all talk. Also, Riley, because he's given us yes. his name, he also says that, you know, of course Gilda was in love with him once, but like now, probably because she doesn't have a heart because, no, she's going after Lord Leckenberry. And why, of course, did she like dump Riley? And it's a little bit like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's because you just keep threatening to strangle people I, I don't know just just thought mm-hmm. but then after saying that he volunteers that he'd like to kill her yep so yep and he specifically so, says he know, wants he, to strangle her he does but he's all he's already been ranting about choking people right. to death so i mean that just goes with the territory for mr sure. riley so tommy and tuppence then decide to go to the train or you know maybe the white house they're intrigued by this note from Gilda Glenn, and they go outside and they go down Morgan's Avenue and it's spookily misty and the mist clears and there's a policeman in the mist. And he seems larger than yes, life. Is it the ghost policeman? No, of course it's not because we're in an Agatha Christie story. Right. It's a real policeman. And it's not the mystery of the blue train. <laughs> that is a, yeah, that is not the mystery of the blue train. So yeah, the ghost policeman is a real policeman and they're kind of chatting with him and they're right in front of the White House at this point. And while they're doing so, Riley frantically runs up behind them. And they had also heard his footsteps in the mist because he was behind them. So that was adding to the spookiness of it. So Riley passes them and he goes up to the White House and he pounds on the door. And this is, of course, Mrs. Honeycott's house, who is Gilda Glenn's sister. The reason why the policeman is there, he says, is because Mrs. Honeycott asked him to stop by. She's constantly worried about people breaking in. And he kind of says... She's she's one of those women who is always uh, asking him to to check in as a policeman. Tommy and Tuppence ask the policeman if there's a young lady dressed in ermine there. And the ghost cop doesn't exactly remember, but then he says, yeah, actually, I think so. There's a woman dressed in like a rabbit or something around her neck. And he says that he saw her rush in. And then he just kind of disappears into the mist. At that point, Riley comes out of the house staggering and then muttering to himself. He makes it through the gate and then starts like sprinting into the mist. As Tommy and Tuppence are like, oh, how interesting. And they walk through the gate and then they note that he's left red handprints all over the gate, which I guess maybe what I'm saying here is I think that we can understand why Tommy and Tuppence are bad at their jobs. Yeah, they see they see this and they're like, hmm, that's weird. Red they, paint? Like, how did he get red paint all over yeah, his hands? Yeah, how did he get red paint huh. all over his And then they proceed to take their sweet time going into this house, talking to Mrs. Honeycock. Yep. Who rants Indeed. about the Catholic Church, because again, Tommy is dressed up as a priest. Although I will note at this point in the story, if you don't remember that from the very beginning of it, it does become a little bit odd as to why this woman is just railing about the Catholic Church. I mean, Church. I think you're supposed to get from that that she's the kind of person who would actually take issue about the church with a priest, which is she's she's combative, she's unpleasant, she's... You know. Oh no no no! That's exactly that's exactly what you're supposed to think. But if you don't remember that Tommy is still in the outfit from the right. beginning, oh, it it's seems a little confusing. Yeah, very yeah. Odd. It's just not. Yeah. It's the, the Tommy being in a priest outfit is just thrown in in the beginning, and it's really not easy to. But remember it's that. also unfortunately important because that's actually also the only reason why they're allowed into the house. Because guess what we find out from uh, Mrs. Featherbottom? Olivia, 
down the bottom. <laughs> we find out that she's let them into the house because, in fact, she thinks Tommy is a priest and a Catholic. And what she wants to have a conversation about is how much she disapproves of divorce. Right. The reason is, oh, guess what? Her sister is Gilda. Gilda is in the house. And Gilda, as a teenager got married and ran off with another man who their father did not want her to marry. Mm-hmm. And now, all these 20 years later, Gilda wants a divorce from this man that she hasn't talked to in a very long time and who she apparently never should have married in the first place. But Mrs. Honeycott hates divorce and like doesn't approve. And she's happy to let Tommy in so that Tommy can talk to her because he's a priest. Right. Um, even though she hates the Catholic Church, she still wants somebody who's going to sway her sister away from a divorce. Unfortunately, and the potentially weirdest part about this is that Mrs. Honeycott doesn't appear to remember who her sister married. Which is absurd. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't remember his name. So she's like, I don't exactly know who it was. So, you know, it potentially could have been Riley, the redheaded pacifist poet, but we're not sure. She has no clue. It is curious that she hates divorce, yet also seems to hate Catholicism. So I suppose she's a strict Anglican, but part of yeah. part of the reason that Anglicanism was created was for divorce. So, for divorce. Right. They explain it more in the episode than they do. In the story. In the story. I think yeah. she needs to check herself before she wrecks herself. <laughs> well, unfortunately for Honeycutt, Tommy and Tuppen start to get one of their typical bad feelings about something. Do you think it could be and, the uh, handprint of blood they saw? <laughs> I mean, one would have thought that probably like, you know, 20 minutes previously. But yeah. Alas, they go upstairs to check in on Gilda, and unsurprisingly, she dead. (laughs) She dead, indeed. She's been bashed on the side of the head. Oops! Yeah, and the worst thing about it is, it's a little bit like, if they'd just gone up there 20 minutes, half an hour, (laughs) however long they've been sitting in the parlor. maybe they would have been able to save her. Like, that is not necessarily a death that was instantaneous. She might have bled out. We'll never we'll know. We'll never know. But it's and now the world is deprived of, of Gilda Glenn. I know. And Tommy and Tuppence are. And they like they went multiple <laughs> times to her performances. Seriously. So who killed Gilda? Let's talk about the world as it actually is. And we already mentioned this, but of course the biggest clue here is that there aren't ghosts. A ghost did not do it because we're not reading The Mystery of the Blue Train. No lady ghosts in sight. So let's talk about timing because timing is so often key in a mm-hmm. Christie story. And this is definitely one of those cases. So what time did Gilda actually show up back at the house after she had been in the hotel lobby with Tommy and Tuppence and Bulger? Both the ghost policeman and Mrs. Honeycott, they confirmed that Gilda ran to the house at about eight minutes past six, which was approximately three minutes before Tommy and Tuppence themselves came up to the house and ran into the ghost, not ghost policeman who said that he had just seen her run in. Correct. And what the people in the house are basing this on is hearing the door slam. Right. That's how they're determining the timing of this. Right. And no one actually saw her entering the house. Right. And so the deduction is that someone had a very limited time frame in which to murder Gilda. But the only person, including Gilda herself, who was witnessed going in or out of the house is Riley. Right. This happens quite often in Christie when only one sense is being used to make an assumption that is often not a safe assumption to make. It would be better Mm -hmm. if we had both sound and sight here to make the assumption of when Gilda, in fact, 
entered the house, and we do not have that. What? Ghost Cop does say that he saw her. He does. He does. So, clue number two. This is another timing thing, but while James Riley was in the house, and again, he's the only person anybody has distinctly seen go in and out of the house. Ellen, the maid, heard Gilda's girlish scream, and right afterwards, Riley comes running down the stairs like a madman and out of the house. Here's a deduction. Ellen heard a girlish scream. Right. There's no, It's not like there was a signature scream that Gilda Glenn had where she was like, well, I know that she screamed because that was her scream. She merely heard a girlish scream. She assumes she that assumes. it was she assumes. Gilda's girlish scream. But who else do we know who had been in the, who, in the house right around that time? Uh, James Riley. And uh, let us not forget, he is a pacifist. <laughs> Poet, after all. Oh, Catherine. <laughs> I'm not, listen. Such stereotyping. I'm not, I am not I don't even think they, I, no, you're, you're, you're trying to say that they, they make that connection in the story? I don't think so. They merely say. Tommy, Tommy says that he, Tommy says to Tuppence, did you notice what a uniquely a high-pitched voice he has? <laughs> well, and he does say in moments of great emotion, men often squeal just like a woman. Roll well, right, right. But before then, he <laughs> notes to Tuppence that they had both noted what a girly voice he had. <laughs> yeah, so perhaps that scream was not Gilda and it was Riley. So clue number three, our final clue. There isn't an obvious murder weapon on site. They know she was bashed in the head, but there's no weapon. They can't find one. So that would probably mean the killer had to take the weapon with him. Perhaps we should think about, if we're being an astute reader, who among our suspects carries something that could be used as a bludgeon on a regular basis. Hmm. Who indeed? Ooh. Might it be Ghost Cop? Ghost Not Ghost Cop does carry a baton. So here's a deduction. It was probably Ghost Cop in the bedroom with a truncheon. Clue. It's not just a game anymore. Just maybe. Just maybe. Could, could be. And that is, in fact, what happened. Except, you know? let's be clear, there kind of isn't a resolution to this. Riley gets arrested. So we find this out. Riley's been arrested because obviously he's the bloody-handed murderer, it appears. But Tommy sort of figures out that he was the screamer and that what really happened was that Gilda ran back to her sister's house, ran into her estranged husband at the gate, drags him inside to hash some stuff out before Tommy the priest shows up. No one hears them actually enter the house. Well, they hear the door slam twice. So the original slam was them coming in, but there was no way to tell that it was two people. Then when they go upstairs, he bludgeons her over the head, then runs out where it just sounds like the door is slamming again. You have no ability to tell if it's somebody going in or out. Just as the door is slammed. They didn't hear her going in because it says Miss Glynn didn't go out. How does she get in then? Tuppence is asking. She came in whilst Mrs. Honeycott was in the kitchen talking to Ellen. They didn't hear her. Mrs. Honeycott went back to the drawing room, wondered if her sister had come in and began to put the clock right. And then as she thought, she heard her heard the come door in slam. and go upstairs because what she heard when she heard the door slam, which was actually the ghost cop murderer leaving, that was when she thought she heard her sister come in. And then she heard her go up the stairs. But what she actually heard was Ellen the maid going up the stairs. Yes. So this was just Correct. people relying, people making assumptions on shaky sensory data. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So basically, when Ghost Cop emerges from the mist and has that nice long chat with Tommy and Tuppence, 
He's actually literally just murdered his estranged wife. Right. Tommy's like, huh, it was the estranged husband. And then the story ends. I guess what we should hope is that Tommy and Tuppence are going to see this through and be like, yeah, probably you guys want to look for Ghost Cop. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're to assume that Tommy is going to tell the authorities about this and make sure that Ghost Cop is arrested and poor Mr. Riley is able to write his pacifist poems in peace. I mean, and like, I guess, threaten other random women for not liking him enough. Right. Get it all out in words as opposed to actions. Theory of <sighs> catharsis there. So... Yeah. Spend some quality time trolling people on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. He's a 1924 troll. Yeah, that is what he is. it seems exactly. So, I mean, you know, I don't think that we should feel so bad for Riley, other than the fact that we do want justice done, and he was, in fact, not the murderer. Right. And we do see that justice done in the adaptation. We see the policeman right. being Correct. dragged away. And the adaptation, very similar to other adaptations within this series, it's extremely faithful. It's a pretty thin story, which makes for a fairly thin episode of television. I will say this. A faithful Facebook friend of ours commented last week that perhaps these 1980s Tommy and Tuppence adaptations for Partners in Crime are best viewed if you look at them as a sitcom. Hmm. His point was he had grown up watching them and their sort of beloved 1980s staple items. But that if you look at the production values and you look at the sort of whimsical lightness of them, if you just view them not in the vein that you would view Poirot, you know, for example, but you view them as a sitcom, it really changes the perspective. And I watched this one with that in mind, and it's pretty true. Mm Mm-hmm. My only issue with that is that, and I think this is just a, it's a tonal issue with this series. It's certainly not dramatic enough to rise to the level of a Poirot or a Marple, production value aside, nor is it funny enough. Well, it's a, it's If I'm going flippant. to view it as a sitcom, I think I need it to be funnier. It's flippant in its way, especially top It's flippant, right? absolutely. And, no, and they're doing everything An they can. They are doing everything they can. There is an archness to them mm-hmm. that you can appreciate. Yeah, I mean, we talked about absolutely fabulous, you know. Well, it is. There are very similar sort of similarities. Except for me, the similarities end in the fact that absolutely fabulous is uproariously funny. That is an opinion. And obviously others do feel differently. So Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it was necessarily meant to be a comedy, but I do think if you look at it as a lighthearted adaptation, right. it becomes more interesting and actually more tonally in keeping with the stories, which are very lightweight. They are, they're, and they're whimsical. They're really meant to be diverting and nothing more. And I do appreciate that. I don't want to be too down on the series either. I think it's dif- it is difficult to watch that series within the larger context of all of these other adaptations that we're watching. And we've watched some particularly lavish ones recently. Well, but I mean, I would also say, you know, we complain about some of the latter Poirots as being particularly dire. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed watching every Poirot, even the last ones when they came out. But having to rewatch some of them when you know just how bleak they are, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a slog. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. They do a good job with these. I think it's, and we've talked about this too, it's the faithfulness issue, especially when you've just read it, to then watch it and not feel like any element is being added 
to the adaptation. It's true. Which hasn't always been the, the, the case. The case of The Missing Lady was our the best situation in which there was a lot added, and I really appreciated that. But for most of these, it feels like there's not much being added. What, you missed Clive Exton throwing in a car chase at the end? Is that Yeah, well, it, because it was, it was, the car chase was always the most laughable element of all the additional elements. But then there was... Miss Lemon, and there was Captain Hastings's sport du jour, yeah. and there was right. Hastings and Poirot banter. Right. So they were doing a lot. It wasn't just the car chases. Yes, the car chases are ridiculous, but no. I mean, I'm teasing, obviously, but I will say this much: it's kind of impressive that the dialogue in the stories actually transfers pretty well to the screen. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is maybe her strongest point, and she is an expert writer of dialogue. Especially good with Tommy and Tuppence. You know, you sort of just get the rapport between them very much, I think. Totally. That is The Man in the Mist. Join us next time for a very special episode, because... Even though Catherine and I are both currently melting in a triple-digit heat wave here in Los Angeles, (laughs) terrible, believe it or not, Halloween is fast approaching, and we thought it would be fun to do a special Agatha Christie Halloween-themed episode. And it's not Halloween party. That will be many, Mm -hmm. many mystery novels down the road. <laughs> Many mystery novels around. I, that's, that one, I believe, is from the 60s, yes, right? Is. So that's Correct. that's one of the final ones, mm-hmm. yeah. So what we will be reading instead are two short stories. One is The Dressmaker's Doll, and the other is Philomel Cottage. Both very different stories, but both, I think, appropriate and fun to read and discuss around Halloween. And as we mentioned, our next novel is Death in the Clouds, the next Poirot within our 30s Poirot extravaganza. So in the meantime, please do reach out to us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame or reach out to Catherine individually at Robcat. She would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and we're on Instagram also at All About Agatha. And please do take a moment and rate and review us. We've been getting some in, and we really appreciate it, and it really does help us out so much. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.